It's the leader that creates the culture and it's the leader that creates the culture of empowerment, of being um, supportive, of building relationships. I think that um, one of the key things that has been part of my success is just building relationships of trust with my teams, the people that are on my teams. I always said, um, the people come first, the business comes second. Welcome to The In Factor, conversations about how great entrepreneurs started, stumbled, and succeeded. I'm Rebecca White, and today's guest is Denise Durgan. Denise is a patient experience performance advisor at Innova Fairfax Medical Campus in Fairfax, Virginia. Before her work in patient experience, Denise worked for more than 25 years at Marriott International and the Ritz-Carlton in sales and marketing leadership roles. After leaving host, Denise became a certified executive coach credentialed with the International Coach Federation. She launched her own executive coaching business and worked one-on-one with Fortune 100 leaders. Three months after she started her company, she was unexpectedly diagnosed with breast cancer. After surgery, Denise had 28 treatments of proton radiation at the Maryland Proton Treatment Center. Her new book, Prescription for Proton Radiation, tells the story of her challenges with getting insurance coverage for this innovative treatment. I hope you enjoy her inspiring story of challenge, hard work, and resilience. Good morning, Denise. Thank you for joining me today on Impactor. Good morning. It's great to be here. So I'm very excited to have you on the podcast on Infactor today. You were recommended by one of my students at the University of Tampa. We were just talking about that a few minutes ago, and she was so impressed. And uh, when I had the chance to look at your bio and your background, um, I too was impressed. It's a very inspiring story. But I always like to go back to the beginning. I know that you worked your way here with a lot of hard work and resilience. So let's uh, let's talk about that a little bit. What got you started down this incredible leadership journey? Certainly, and um, and I just I think Allison Sass, your student that recommended me, will be on the show someday too. So. <laughs> um, but in terms of the beginning, yes, I mean I I grew up in Massachusetts, and um, one of my first jobs in, in my life is actually one of my favorite. I was an ice cream scooper at Crescent Ridge Dairy. It's it's actually on uh, National Geographic um, best ice cream or most interesting place to visit. And um, I was just, I loved it there. The owners were very uh, hands-on. They, they empowered all of us as ice cream scoopers. Even if a customer returned the ice cream and ate three quarters of it, you just give them a new one and don't ask. And it just made, just made work so easy. And I thought to myself, wow, he's really created this environment for us to thrive and to be good, um, you know, good, good service professionals and have people enjoy themselves. So um, that was my first job. And I, um, I went to UMass Amherst and I started down the path of journalism. I really, I love to write. I wanted to be I, I had uh, this vision of being the first female reporter on the NFL's uh, on the NFL sidelines, and so I uh, I started down the path of journalism. And I, uh, as part of the training in journalism, they send you out on these mock interviews, and so I'd have to get sort of in a family's face and ask about 
somebody that was um, murdered or something. And that was just too much for me. And then I fell into the hotel industry through changing majors at UMass Amherst. And I just really loved it. And um, in 1988, I had started with a, a, a new leader. I moved from Massachusetts down to the DC area I live. Now I live in McLean, Virginia, just a few miles outside of DC. But my first assignment was at Crystal City Marriott. And my boss, Lee Larchelle, back then in 1988, 89, he's still uh, one of the mentors and sort of on my advisory in my life career. So I was very inspired by his leadership. And he was very much the same as the ice cream place at the Crescent Ridge. He would say, I said to him, what is your secret for success? And he said, you know, I, I surround myself around great people and let them thrive. And so I knew early on, I really loved to work. I love being self-reliant. I love working on teams, being a good team player. But I had this vision that I really wanted to lead very early on in my career. Um, when I was in um, uh, CCD class as a as part of the Catholic um, faith, I was a coach to a women's uh, basketball team and they came in first. And I just thought, wow, coaching this, this young group of women to come in first place, that was sort of my first stake in leadership. And I knew I wanted to do that at Marriott. So that's kind of how I got started. I was inspired by a, a lot of stories and a lot of good leaders that I, that I learned from. So there's a lot in there I'd like to dig into. Uh, <laughs> I've been yeah. to the Crystal City Marriott and it is a, it is a great location and but one of the things you mentioned the customer service piece interestingly I think I mentioned to you I I was teaching a graduate class last night and we spent probably 30 to 45 minutes talking about the relationship between customers and um, and sales or customer service representatives and um, those people serving them. And um, the way the reason this came up is because the students had an assignment for, for creating a bug list. So we were talking about that opportunities often come out of problems. And so they were making a list of all the things that bugged them. And at the very top was this relationship. And you mentioned how you learned that at a very young age. So I'd love to know, you know, what are just, you know, off the top of your head, a couple of lessons that you learned, you know, how do we turn that around? Because, you know, it seems like there is a real problem with customer service for a lot of companies, even if they give it lip service, or even if they say it's an important value, the experience for the customer or even for the service person is often, you know, less than desirable. You've got angry people on both sides, it seems like. <laughs> sometimes. Yes. Yeah, sometimes. And so I really think it comes down to the training and the empowerment for the employee or the team member associate, whatever they're called, so that they can feel confident to solve the problem. And if they don't have the training and the, the tools and the support from the leader, then it's really on the leader. You know, they set the culture and the way that people perform. And so I would say that, the, that they have to have the right tools. I mean, I was just recently in a meeting and we were talking about, you know, if we say I'm sorry and I apologize, like what else can we say to somebody to show that we really care about them and we are sorry that, you know, somebody's late or something like that. So I think that the, that the employees really need to have the tools, the support and the culture from the leaders to be able to um, make decisions for customers that might be outside of the box. I mean, that was 
standard table stakes at Marriott and the Ritz-Carlton, whatever it took. And, and a lot of times it would just be buying a $5 umbrella to help somebody that forgot theirs at the hotel. It didn't really cost much money. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for, um, for the, back to the tools, I think that a lot of times in the service industry, as I've spent most of my life and still am, that sometimes we take things personal. We, um, somebody's anger can trigger our own emotion and we're completely unaware of it. So I would say early on, and um, I wish early on in my career, I learned about self-awareness later on down the line, but just being aware of what triggers you, somebody's tone of voice or just what they're saying and, you know, create some space around that. Mm-hmm. Well, you spent 25 plus years, I think, with yeah. uh, with Marriott and the Ritz-Carlton, and, and then you became an executive coach. What led you down the path of starting your own business? Was it that some of the lessons, these lessons that we're talking about now, and, and you saw a gap in the marketplace, or, or were there other reasons as well? Sure. So I went from Marriott and Ritz to host hotels and resorts, and I was in asset manager, management there for three and a half years, and I loved it. I learned more. It's the, the largest hotel owner in the country, and I learned more about the other hotel chains that they owned. I was doing a lot of travel. I was traveling. Um, I loved the team, my leaders. It was a great culture. But um, after three and a half years of traveling all over, I really missed my husband, my stepdaughters, my doggies. And I always had this tug in, in me, within me, that my sister owns her own business as a psychotherapist. She's very successful. Mm-hmm. She is amazing. And she's my hero. <laughs> and then my dad owned owned his own business his whole life. My mom, when they were married, supported my dad. And then she went off after they divorced and got an undergraduate degree, a master's degree, and she thrived as a human resource professional. So here I have um, all these wonderful role models for me and my own family, and especially this thread of entrepreneurship. And so I said to my um, supervisor at Host at the time, and we, we still stay in touch, he's just fantastic. And I said to Brian, I just feel like now is the time with all the travel I'm doing. I just feel that if I don't try to become um, an executive coach professionally, then I'm never going to do it. I mean, so, I mean, I got my master's degree at 50 years old. So, you know, there's no, it's, it's never too late. And, um, and actually, Allison, that referred, that we spoke about earlier, Allison uh-huh. Sass, it was um, a professor that she had, John Castellone, and he said to me, you are too conservative in your thinking. You need to just take the leap. It's never going to be a good time. And that was great advice for me. And so between all the travel, um, I had a great exit from host. I actually stayed three more months. I got my certification and I really loved being an executive coach, supporting people. I learned a lot about what coaching is and isn't through my certification and my credentials. And I just really loved it. Well, that's so, so, um, so, you know, timing, you mentioned timing it and timing was right for you. Right. So, so, you know, when, when, uh, when we talk about opportunity recognition in my classes, we always talk about the importance of timing and, and timing for the entrepreneur and timing for the marketplace. So when you took this leap, was it everything you dreamed it would be? Uh, you know, what, what was your experience as an entrepreneur after being very successful in a corporate environment? You know, I'll never forget that day. It was September, um, I think it was September 6th in 2017. And I woke up and I said, oh my gosh, I don't have a consistent paycheck. (laughs) (laughs) And as my financial advisor said, some people kind of do that on the side and then take the leap, but you just really took the leap, you know? So 
um, what was that like? I mean, first of all, financially, I had saved, and um, even though I'm married, I'm I was just very uh, thoughtful about um, having enough to be able to do this and try this on my own, you know. And so, I I just couldn't wait to get started, and I found the certification, the place where I wanted to get certified, Center for Executive Coaching. Andrew Knightlick's program is amazing, and I just went into learning mode. And I, I consider myself a lifelong learner. I mean, spending this time with you is just really incredible for me. I love new experiences. And so it was very exciting. I learned early on that some of the business skills that I have were easily transferable. I mean, many of them, but then when you're running your own business, you're running your own books, you're finding your own niche. And so um, something that has been, I think, just who I am as a professional, as a person, but I really love to build relationships, genuine relationships. I'm friends with customers I had in the 90s with Marriott and still stay in touch. Um, and so I relied on these relationships just to branch out and um, market myself as an executive coach. Um, I learned also early on from mistakes and um, not to go too wide in your market to be as an executive coach, more of a niche and so I had to really make an adjustment. I was doing more career coaching, and then I moved back into executive coaching, coaching at a law firm, coaching at Georgetown University through their, um, their master's programs, coaching professionals. And so um, those are some of the, kind of the lessons I learned, just how to adjust and how to be real niche in your market. I, I was at a um, Georgetown host these, um, well, before the pandemic, but these in-person forums. And Ken Langone, um, who you probably know, the um, who started Home Depot, he was the mm -hmm. guest speaker. And something I've I just love to do in my career, in my life, is just think about how I can make a relationship maybe with a new person. And I really was inspired by him. I read his book, and I walked up after, gave him a card, and just said how much I appreciated his book. And I thought I have nothing to lose. I wanted to get his advice as an entrepreneur. And so he actually, a few weeks later, wrote back to me a handwritten note. And he said, my advice to you is to stay in a swim lane that you're really good at. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was like, you know, that makes sense because that was sort of the lessons I learned on my own from being too, too wide and, and really needing to narrow. So, um, yeah, that's how I would describe it. And that's, you know, that's really, that's really great advice. You know, you took a, you took a step out and so many entrepreneurs now are, are building businesses around themselves and what they can do. And so kind of solo entrepreneurs, like you're talking about. And so you have to depend just on yourself. Um, and of yeah. course, lots of help from, from um, supporters and that sort of thing. And, and, you know, you, you certainly can purchase assistance as well. But the, the interesting thing about really having a focus is that how hard it can be when you've done exactly what you did. And that is you gave up your other source of income and then you've got potential opportunities, but they're not quite in that lane, that swim lane that you were talking about. And so turning those down, saying no, because it, it's not where you really need to be headed, takes a lot of insight and a lot of self-awareness and a lot of wisdom and a lot of understanding and, and um, sort of nerves of steel sometimes, right? <laughs> <laughs> it certainly does. I mean, my training at Marriott and Ritz-Carlton and even at Host, just, um, you know, we don't say no. We find a way to say yes and to help the customer and to find opportunities. So it was very difficult for me to 
pass a client to somebody else, knowing that I could help them, but knowing that that would detract from, you know, my core purpose, what you needed to do, but your highest mm-hmm. and best use of your time. That's, that's one of the rules I try to live by is highest and best use of my time. And it's hard. Sometimes it's, it's really a challenge. So uh, you, how many years did you do your executive coaching? Cause I think now you're back, uh, you're working back in a medical clinic, right there in Fairfax. So can you tell us about that transition and, you know, what led you down that path? Certainly. So uh, three, four months after I was certified as an executive coach and started with Georgetown and finding clients, I went and got a routine mammogram and I was diagnosed with breast cancer just out of the blue And it was really heartbreaking and it really shook me to the core. Uh, Not something I ever would expect it. I'm a very healthy person, eat healthy and work out. And so I had, I kept going. I remember I had to take a, um, I was in a secondary course with a master coach and um, these were one-on-one small cohorts. And then I had to coach um, a real client and have her listen and pass this through to the International Coach Federation. And so I had to have um, a mastectomy the the day I was supposed to do one of my last trainings with her. And I said, you know, I want to actually be on this call with you two days or the day after. And she said, how about you give it a couple of weeks? So I stuck with it and I ended up um, earning a new client while I was in treatment and I was in radiation treatment and remember just being very burned at the end and my whole body feeling burned. And here I was facilitating a course, which I really, really love to do. And so I stuck with it and then the pandemic hit. And um, in between, I started noticing the parallels between um, being, being, I consider myself the soul of service. I mean, I love to serve others and starting with the ice cream. Mm-hmm. And so I started noticing these parallels of the hotel industry and the healthcare industry. And when it was really, really great, I really connected with um, some of the healthcare professionals. I would write reviews and surveys talk to them, let them know how much I appreciated them. And then when it was off course, I could not believe how off course it could be off track and messaging and cancer care. And so I started getting really drawn to this whole universe of the patient experience while I was coaching. And so I reached out to somebody that I um, used to work with on my largest team at Marriott. I ran a region for Marriott and, um, I said, you're a patient experience officer. What does that mean? Can we connect? And we hadn't talked probably in 10 or 12 years. We chit-chatted and she said, the Barrel Institute, this is an organization that is committed to elevating the human experience in healthcare. And so I applied um, to become a member. And then I was um, asked to be on their um, Global Patient Family Advisory Board representing the patient voice in healthcare. And so it was really from that experience. And then I started branching out more and um, volunteering within the patient experience. And I started to really have this transition that I really should be, I think, in healthcare, being more intentional with my coaching skills, knowing I'm not perfect too, but, um, and helping others maybe be able to communicate um, differently, help them solve problems. And so I follow that. Um, I went through the treatments and things and I kept working, but I followed that passion through just the love of the patient experience that I learned from the Barrel Institute. So, yeah, I started at Inova, um, Inova Health System at Inova Fairfax Hospital, Inova um, Fairfax Medical Campus, 
here in Fairfax, Virginia in February of this year. So it's now September and I really love it. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm fascinated by this because I know that the healthcare industry has a lot of challenges and you brought up the patient experience and, you know, I, I know that there was a time when, um, when patients would go in to see a doctor and a doctor would sit down and listen and spend time with them. And then, then the financial system, I guess, made it harder for doctors and the, to, to take the time to be with patients. And is this kind of what you try to, do you try to address, you know, the physicians, the, the nurses, the other healthcare providers and, and how they interact with the patients, or do you work with the patients or, you know, what is your, what is your role in that relationship? Sure. As a, as a patient experience performance advisor, I support um, the healthcare professionals as well as the patients and families. And so um, in whatever that they need me to do. And so whether it's um, solving a business process problem or challenge or helping a patient and family, it can be very different every day. And I just really enjoy it because I feel that I'm making a difference in um, how I can help support on both sides. And I just really feel for the healthcare professionals. They have been through so much and I'm coming in at a time after the pandemic. And I just, I mean, heroes, it's not even, it's not even a big enough word for the people that I work with. Mm -hmm. Um, They're just really incredible. Sometimes I feel like they're such at such a high level of performance that, you know, how, how really can I help? But, um, you know, I'm there for, for everyone. And, um, and I really enjoy it. Our hospital, even through the pandemic, our women's, I support the women's and children's line and our women's hospital just um, ranked sixth in the country for um, a a lot of different metrics under the U.S. News and World Report. And that really means a lot to the team because it's not really the number, it's the story behind the number. It's these experiences that they're creating that are that the patients are telling us that um, it matters to them how they're being treated. Like you said, communication, they just, um, they're just a, a, a well-oiled team and of professionals that just really love what they do and they do it so well. You know, one of the things that we talked about in my class last night was empathy for the other person and on both sides. And you brought up the issue, you know, patients get very frustrated because their doctors don't have enough time with them, but doctors are caught, and not just doctors, but all the healthcare professionals are caught in this, especially now, you know, dealing with this pandemic, with this overload of expectations on the system. And um, the the pandemic's been really interesting, I think, for all of us, and painful for many and challenging, but it's also created some opportunities. And it sounds like in, in your particular case, that uh, you know, you've been able to work through a lot. You've worked through your own illness. You've worked through this pandemic, and I'm just curious: is work for you somewhat therapeutic? Does doing all of this help you deal with all the challenges that you've been facing personally, and that you've seen our country and our world facing? I really do. I I, um, I really feel like it's just the right place for me to be you know, and, um, and things happen for reason. And then sometimes you also have to go for things, you know, things don't get handed to you. They never happen for me. I've always worked for them. So yes, I think it's just, it's a place where I feel like it's just, you know, it sounds so cliche, but it's meant to be. And, um, in my own experiences, in my diagnosis, my cancer diagnosis, my 
medical team was just over the top phenomenal. They were just amazing communicators. They still are. And um, I, I really appreciate them. So I went from patient of all of my physicians to, you know, to team member at, at the hospital. And it just feels like it was the right time. And, um, and so I'm truly grateful. Yeah. Well, you mentioned hard work and it's clear that you don't sit around. <laughs> no, I do not. <laughs> and, you know, uh, interestingly, um, you know, I'm, I'm someone that also um, used the pandemic to, to pursue something that, uh, you know, a book basically that I had wanted to write yeah. for a while. But I understand, speaking of books, that you have a book um, that came out of all of this experience. So on top of everything that you've been doing, um, the, you know, the self-care and the healthcare personally and, and transitioning and training and learning and meeting new people. You've also written a book called Prescription for Proton Radiation. And I know, that, um, I know because I've read about it a little bit that there's a story behind why you wrote this book, but would you tell our listeners a little bit about that story and then tell us a little bit about the book and, and the audience for the book and who might be interested in the book? Oh, thank you so much. Yes. Um, so when I learned that I unexpectedly needed radiation, um, they found more cancer in my lymph node after my surgery. And so it was unexpected. So I was prescribed radiation treatment and I sort of fell into proton radiation, a more precise and highly targeted radiation that, that it protects the healthy tissues and organs. And so for example, left-sided breast cancer, proton radiation, it will uh, protect the, the heart much more effectively than other types of radiation. I just um, compare it to photon. And so uh, once I found proton radiation, um, which is in the book, and it's a funny story how I stumbled into it, and I was eventually prescribed protons um, from my physician. I, um, Dr. Evelyn, who's just phenomenal, he said to me and the team at the Maryland Proton Treatment Center, so this is the right treatment for you. This is, you know, what I'm prescribing for you based on your health background and your family history. And so just so that you know, it might take a little bit to get insurance to prove it because they typically, typically don't do that right away. And so I thought, okay, well, if they typically don't do that right away, maybe that's just a business process with insurance, being so naive to this and being just a few weeks out of surgery. And um, people talk about mastectomy very easily these days, but it is a removal of a body part. And it's pretty, it's pretty intense. Traumatic, yes. you know? Yeah. And so <clears throat> I have this optimism thread in, in, in me and my soul. And I thought, oh, you know, it'll go great. But then at the same point, I have this part of me that is plan B, what if it doesn't? And so this took a few weeks for Dr. Evelyn and, the, and Allison at the team at the Maryland Proton Center to get my insurance to approve payment for this radiation therapy. And each week that went by and my cancer treatments were delayed, I had this, I had this um, just revelation that when I am ready, I'm coming back and I need to tell my story and I need to find other patients and I need to figure out, is this happening in cancer care only? Are patients being delayed um, cancer treatments be waiting for insurance to approve it? I mean, this does not sound right. It's really backwards, <laughs> especially with my background in service. I kept thinking to myself, if we let somebody wait to check into a hotel for 10 minutes, they would be really upset. And so here I am trying to get the insurance company to approve it. 
of which my husband and I paid for insurance. And um, it was a denial, appeal, denial, appeal. And, and this happens every day. It's called the peer-to-peer -peer, peer -peer review process. It's first called the prior authorization where the physician submits, and then they have a peer-to-peer -peer decide, well, we're we going to pay for it or not. At the Maryland Proton Treatment Center, my treatments were the same as regular photon radiation. And so there was no cost difference. I'm a business professional. I understand maybe the Maybe the healthcare company looks at my health and, and decides that a $60,000 treatment is not worthy. And so we can do a 25,000. Okay. So as cold as that sounds, that's probably how they're thinking, but mine was cost neutral. It cost the same. And they still kept um, delaying and denying my approvals for it. And so <clears throat> Dr. Evelyn said to me, you know, you could, you could talk to your Congressman and um, when you're ready, I mean, he was just, he's so nice and still is. And I thought, oh, I'm going to do that. I'm going to help people. This is when my pain became my purpose. And um, in October of 2020, I enrolled in the Creators Institute program. There was 155 of us authors. I picked as a first-time author a nonfiction book about science and physics. And I interviewed um, 15 patients. I told my own story. I have nine radiation oncologists including the chief medical officer at Varium, one of the makers of the Proton Machine, the one I had at the Proton Center. And um, I wanted to tell the story of proton radiation. Sometimes patients don't know about it because sometimes the physicians don't have it in their, in their hospital and they don't offer it, which is not good. It shouldn't be that way. That happened. I've met people through social media that have found me even before the book was published. So I'm aiming to educate about proton radiation in terms of the audience who would like to read the book Anyone that needs radiation, um, whether it's a benign tumor or a cancerous tumor, but to educate about what this modality does and how it really does protect the quality of life for the patient and helps protect the healthy tissues and structures. And then two, from our own patient stories, learn about the treatment and how we did so, so many of us did so well in the treatment. I interviewed head coach Ron Rivera from the Washington football team, formerly the Washington Redskins. He's one of the patients I interviewed for the book. I mean, he talks about his experience and um, how for a few days the machine wasn't working for him and he had to have the other radiation for his throat and how debilitating that was. It's in, it's in the book. And so all of us talked about the treatment because we were so passionate about it. It's not very well known. There's only 37 centers and, and they're growing in the country. But um, for patients to know how it feels to be in radiation, Sometimes people say, oh, you just needed radiation. You didn't need chemo. There's no just needed radiation. Radiation is, is not a walk in the park, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I wanted patients to know what it felt like to be in radiation. I wanted to know from a patient's perspective before I wrote the book. And there wasn't a, there was one book that I referenced in the book and um, he had prostate cancer. And so I knew from reading his book, what it could feel like. And so I want patients to know what it, what it can feel like. And then also I provide a lot of resources for how patients can navigate the insurance system. Um, Medicare, Medicaid tends to approve it uh, more regularly uh, with supplemental plans or not. But with, in the private insurance marketplace, this um, submission, appeal, denial, appeal, it happens all the time. And it's really not right. And so I want patients to know that if you continue with your doctor's support, I'm not a doctor, I say that at the beginning, and this is a, from a patient's perspective, that patients, if with their doctor's support, they can still appeal and advocate for themselves and get their cases overturned. And many of ours weren't and some were not. 
but I wanted to provide resources. And then if people want to legislate, provide those resources too. So um, this morning I found out it's uh, number six in new releases on Amazon um, in the cancer category and number one in nuclear physics. And so I'm no nuclear physicist, obviously, but the physicians in the book really helped provide just such credibility to the modality and, and be able to answer the question, what should a patient know about protons? So I know that's a long answer, but I think you can oh, tell it's fantastic. I'm very passionate about paying sure. it forward. I really feel like I'm called to pay it forward because I had such a horrible experience and ultimately my case was overturned. So I had um, insurance pay for the treatment. That's wonderful. So no, it, it's great, great answer. <laughs> Not too long and just, just fantastic. And I'm so proud of you and, and congratulations on, on the success of your book. I know it's going to help so many people. And uh, I love that. You know, I'm, I am curious, how, how did you go about getting yours, you know, getting yours approved? And how long did that take for you personally? So um, they started, they started the process in um, late March, early April. And I finally got approved on the first week of May. So it was um, at least, I think it was almost two months of delay. And, um, and in cancer, got, that's a lot, right? It's a with, lot. With because, cancer treatment, yeah. Yeah, and I, I remember asking one of the doctors, you know, wh where does the cancer, so naive, you know, where, where does the cancer go after it goes in the lymph node? Well, we don't know. That's why you need to be in radiation. We don't know. Oh, my goodness. Oh, no. Yeah. I mean, they were honest. And so how I got it overturned is Dr. Eblen and Allison Skull at the Proton Center they work tirelessly on my case, but they do it day in and day out. He now works at another facility um, um, in Virginia, but I, um, they ended up submitting a nine-page um, letter of medical necessity going through comparing the modalities between proton and photon in this um, letter of medical necessity and the fact that, my, that Dr. Evelyn really demanded that he speak to a radiation oncologist at the insurance company they were not, he was not speaking to a radiation oncologist. So, I mean, mm. it could have been a primary care physician making a decision in radiation when they've mm -hmm. never rotated in that, um, that field. And so I think it's the combination of the letter of medical necessity, um, as well as Dr. Evelyn speaking to um, a radiation oncologist on the other end. They ended up overturning my case and I started to, to, it was a Friday, they overturned my case. I started treatment on Monday, mm -hmm. but it's heartbreaking to hear some of the stories in the book of um, people whose cases didn't get overturned mm -hmm. and then people can't afford it. And so the proceeds of my book are going to two pediatric organizations that two of the pediatric brain cancer patients in my book are supporting and, um, and their cases got approved right away, which is fabulous. And one of the moms said to me, I just can't believe that people wouldn't get approved. It makes no sense if the physician orders the prescription, you know? So uh, there's a little bit of um, telling the story of how insurance works and sort of going behind the, the curtain so people can know what they're getting into. Right, right. And I've got a lot of research in the book and it's not just in cancer care. This happens day in and day out in the medical world. And it's just, it's just not right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it can be. I mean, I'm, I'm a pretty highly educated person and I know it's very frustrated, frustrating for me oftentimes to figure things out. And uh, I know that there are a lot of people that don't know where to turn at all. And uh, so I know your book's going to help a lot of people. So thank you for doing that. And, and, uh, and, and 
congratulations on your own health and and your own success with everything. It's it's wonderful to hear. You know this this uh, this podcast. I mean, this is a fabulous story. This a lot of the listeners of this podcast are really interested in understanding how to build or run a successful business. And, you know, as I listen to you talk, I hear things like communication and empathy and, and uh, leadership. I'd love to hear your thoughts on kind of a summary of, of what do you think makes a company successful? And, and, you know, where should an entrepreneur be focusing when they're trying to build the culture for a successful company? Sure. I mean, I think starting from the beginning, just like we talked about really finding your niche of how you're helping solve problems. So what is the problem that needs to be solved in the marketplace and how do I solve that? And then being able to be very clear on the description of how you solve that, not in big paragraphs and all of this, but just how, how you can do that as a business owner. And then once you've got a team, I mean, for me, it was, it was just me. So it was a little bit different. But because I've worked in these other organizations, I have just such an appreciation and as well as seeing other entrepreneurs, it's the leader that creates the culture and it's the leader that creates the culture of empowerment, of being um, supportive, of building relationships. I think that um, one of the key things that has been part of my success is just building relationships of trust with my teams, the people that are on my teams. I always said, um, the people come first, the business comes second. And I mean that sincerely. And that was part of my success is my team knew I always had their back. If um, they were running into problems, my responsibility is to remove those rocks and boulders out of their way so that they can thrive. Talk to customers if, if um, hopefully I can, because I love talking to customers, not just in a, as a problem, but proactively take them out to lunch, get to know them, build relationships. So I think really those are the key ingredients, but it really starts with um, the leader's vision of the culture. And um, at my biggest assignment at Marriott, I had 113 hotels. And on day one, when I opened this office, I was very clear on what our mission was going to be and our vision. And I asked the team, um, I don't know, there was about 170 of them to envision, close their eyes and envision three years from now. And what do people, how will they describe our team? And I made a commitment that we would have our spirit to serve our community, the spirit to serve each other, the spirit to serve our um, stakeholders, and um, and the spirit to serve our customers. There were four pillars, and all that we did, as long as we were doing something around those four pillars, we were doing what we were supposed to. And hopefully, we'll have some fun along the way and build relationships. And you know, I did that assignment back in 2008, and I will say that. Um, a lot of the members on my team I am still connected with, and some even have been purchasing the book. And it's just, I think those are the key ingredients. Um, I really miss that team and I miss leading them. They were just really phenomenal. But it really comes down to that and being very clear. Yeah, I love I love how you identified your four pillars because, you know, one of the things I've found as a leader over the years is, is that you, ha- you have to have something to go back to when the decisions are tough. Yes. And, yes. and, and I think that's really, really valuable advice to, to, yes, to... I re- it is. I mean, I remember when it was 2008 and the economy crashed and we just launched this office and sales and no one was booking meetings. And so I said to the team, well, we can't spend money. So the top salespeople can, this sounds ridiculous because everybody wears jeans now, but we couldn't back then in 2008. Mm-hmm. So the top salespeople can wear jeans. They're just going to make that decision. It wasn't very popular with some in the company, but we weren't customer facing and the team loved it. 
And so as long as, like you said, we're going back to one of those pillars and that was my spirit to serve each other and my spirit to serve the team. So, yeah, I think just being very clear on that and staying true to it is um, it makes it easy for people. They know what they're supposed to do and they know the leader will have their back. Right, right. And as a leader, it, it also is, is sort of a North Star. It's a guiding principle. You know, one of your principles, uh, I think, has been giving back and helping others. You've built your whole career around it. What kind of advice would you have for an entrepreneur about, about giving back? And, and do you think that's an important part of what every entrepreneur, uh, maybe all of us need to be thinking about? I do. I mean, I, um, and I think it's hard for entrepreneurs, especially starting out, you know, it depends on uh, the sales, et cetera. I understand that, but I think the, the way a, an entrepreneur's brand is perceived in the marketplace, especially now has a lot to do with how they are interacting with the community around them. And to be able to go to an organization that aligns with something that might be personal to them. Um, a friend of mine owns a very um, successful hair salon here in DC, in the DC area. And, um, she, you know, she's very committed to helping working women. And so she'll do, um, you know, coat drives and suit drives and things like this. And so I think that when the time is ready for the entrepreneur, I, I almost think it's a must have. It's not, it's not even a decision, <laughs> but it should, you know, really align with maybe the business, but also maybe the business owner, something that they're passionate about. And um, those that receive on the other end are, are always grateful. And it just, it just makes things better when we contribute in that way. Uh, my, my, um, my call to do more volunteer Ironically, 20 years ago on 9-11, I said to myself, I had a plane ticket that day and um, I was ready to go to um, present in Chicago, fly from DC. And I, I was getting an MRI for my knee. I was running a marathon that day. And the technician said, hey, you probably should watch the news. And so when, I, when all of those things transpired and our hotels were helping triage at the Pentagon, I kept thinking to myself, if I was on one of those planes, what would I have regretted in my life? And I thought from now on, I will not say that I will regret giving back to the community. I will give back. I went and donated blood at Inova and I volunteered at Inova where now I work, but I volunteered for 10 years in their pediatric unit. Um, and so I know that's a little bit digressing from um, the entrepreneurs, but I, I want to say that that's just really where it came from and, it, and, it, and I continue to do so. And I, and I hope that other entrepreneurs would too just find something that really aligns with them and, and really aligns with their, their, their integrity, their character, um, what they're about. Yeah. That, well, I think it's a fantastic message because a lot of being successful as an entrepreneur, I think is resilience and, yeah. you know, being able to execute past failure. And obviously, I mean, you and I both have been working through three pretty major crises. If you look back at nine 11 and the reset, the great recession and, now COVID. And it's very interesting. In fact, some of the research I'm doing is on resilience and I'm looking at companies and how they manage the, you know, companies that are 20 plus years old and have survived through those three uh, timeframes. And the hotel industry, interestingly, I think is, is one that got hit really hard by all three. You know, yes. some, in, some industries I'm on a 
I'm on a, a board, a, a public company board that sells luxury yachts and boats. And we did fantastic through COVID because it turns out <laughs> that's something you can do, you know, in social, socially distance. But uh, the hotel industry and a lot of the travel and tourism is going to take a while, I think. Um, you know, they're getting hit again right now with this this uptick in cases. So really great story of resilience, Denise. It's been, it's been such a blessing for me today to talk to you and hear your story. And, and you have such an amazing spirit and you've demonstrated, you know, I think the real entrepreneurial spirit. Um, And I don't think you always have to have your own company the whole time to do that. And so I, I love, I love your story. You know, one of the things I always ask, and you've already given great advice, but I always end by asking what's one piece of advice. If you could distill any everything, or if you could come up with one thing that you don't want people to forget or that you'd like them to remember after they listen to this, what would that be? Certainly, I, I think it would, um, I know it would be building relationships of trust. I think it's so important. And um, for your for your customers, for the community, for your teammates, the people maybe above you, your your boards, just relationships of trust, um, being known of to being known to be a person of integrity really means something. So I, I think building relationships and and having fun with those relationships. All these people I've met along the way, um, you know, Stacy's pita chips that you see in the grocery store. Mm-hmm. Stacy wo- Stacy worked alongside of me scooping ice cream back then. <laughs> Nice. Talk about relationships, you know, I mean, so to have fun with the relationships and realize also that, you know, they're just, um, it's, it's just, for me, it's been really the reason why I've succeeded is just is through that. So I don't think that's very eloquent, but, um, That's perfect. That's how I would distill it. Yeah, it's perfect. Thank you, Denise. So how can our listeners find out more about you and your book and, and, you know, what you're up to these days? Certainly I am. Well, I'm on LinkedIn under Denise Durgan Maloney. And in terms of my book, it's um, right now on Amazon. It will be in Barnes and Noble soon, very soon, but prescription for proton radiation, just put that in the Amazon search and it will come up. And, um, and I'm going to be loading my author bio there too. So I would love for people to check out the book. You never know when you might need it uh, and or to donate it to a hospital or, or, or something like that or library. But those are the places. And, um, and I can't tell you, Dr. White, I'm just so honored and thrilled to spend this time with you today. And another time, I'd love to hear more about your book and your journey. But it's just, you really gave me a lot of energy and sunshine today. And I really appreciate the time. Thank you. The feeling's mutual. Thank you, Denise. (laughs) Thank you. Take care. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to learn more about entrepreneurship, we would love it if you hit that subscribe button. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of InFactor.